0: Where it gets nasty is in the description of what it was that was bought. And often the description is so broad that it sort of like talks about your software in whatever form it may come in, in perpetuity I get as an MFN clause. And that's not really an appropriate sort of cage. And I think that term limiting and talking about specifics of capabilities is probably much better preferred as an overall strategy for something like that than it's my enterprise edition.
1: Welcome to the Leaders of B2B podcast, a weekly show where we bring you interviews and in the weeds expertise with today's B2B experts and thought leaders. You can see more about today's episode and guest by visiting our website at leadersofb2b.com. This episode is brought to you by Content Allies. We help B2B companies launch revenue-generating podcasts. We schedule interviews between you and your ideal prospects and strategic partners. You show up for engaging conversations, we handle everything else. Ready to build a podcast that grows your business in just one hour per week? Reach out to us at contentallies.com. Do you employ or pay workers in other countries? Even if you don't yet, you might soon. Now that remote work is the norm, employees have more freedom than ever to move around. If you want to keep the best people, you have to stay flexible. That's why remote makes it easy for companies of all sizes to employ global teams. They take care of international payroll, benefits, taxes, and local compliance, so you can focus less on paperwork and more on growing your business. Remote helps you onboard full-time employees or contractors in countries all over the world in minutes on its simple, easy-to-use platform. And even better, Remote helps you rest easy by providing you the most comprehensive intellectual property protection and data security in the industry. They own full local legal entities in all their covered regions, guaranteeing you never have to deal with a third party, ever. To save you money, Remote never charges any fees or salary percentages. You get access to everything Remote offers from payroll to compliance and to benefits management for one low flat rate. No hidden fees, no surprises, ever just the best global employment solution in the business. Best of all, podcast listeners get an even bigger discount. Get your first employee free for 12 months and two months free for any additional employees onboarded during their first year. You can get 50% off remote's full suite of global employment solutions for your first employee for three months. Just visit remote.com slash leaders and use the promo code leaders.
2: Hey leaders, welcome back. This is Ledge. I'm welcoming Chris Mealy here. Chris, I would love if you would do an introduction. We have a lot to talk about. Pricing is one of my favorite topics. So tell me all about you and your business and uh, let's get into it.
0: First, thank you for having me. Maybe the, the fun story is I had a software company for maybe 13 years. So after that journey, the Funny story is I actually I, I hired software pricing partners in' eight when we were moving from the cloud uh, from on prem to the cloud that 's how I got to know the team and it was just kind of an uncanny uh, timing incident. I was heading down for an interview in Charlotte. I was going to lead another software company. I was our CEO at the time, so this was a similar position and I just picked up the phone and called one of the partners and one thing led to another and i I just ended up thinking about this career path all during that interview for that software company and thinking do I really want to do this? And is this really some, uh, it's a pretty radical, you know, career change for a technologist, uh, which I've always been. And I, I wouldn't change it for the world. That was a very uh, lucky twist in the career path that you wouldn't really normally be able to predict.
2: And so you became involved with the company and now are one of the leaders, right? You came on board. Yeah,
0: I did. So uh, I bought the founding team out and then have taken over the practice. And since then, Similar to your background with services, we're a services company, but we're a tech-enabled services company. We brought a lot of technology to play specifically around modeling price changes and impacts and simulating outcomes and then also Uh, enabling revenue production in B2B software companies with sort of advanced analytics and oversight and sort of this idea of how do you optimize and improve packaging and pricing over time. And that is all software that we've built on our own and AWS serverless technology and stuff that we're very excited about. So I get to, I remember when I had my software company, I was always sort of looking into the engineering room and wanting so badly not to maybe be doing what I was doing and just to kind of go geek out in the code and just see like how the architecture was working. And so it's, I do get a little bit of that in my new role, which is fun. You
2: you get to dive in and... uh play code a little bit here and there. They let you still touch things. Huh?
0: <laughs> yeah, there there's some really thorny, very complicated problems to solve in B2B. We call it monetization, maybe not pricing, but it's packaging, pricing, licensing, and it's really easy to put a bunch of stuff in a PowerPoint. It's really easy to say I'll survey a bunch of people, but we do something very different. And that gets into the details of the usage and the transaction data and the modeling and the sort of oversight of what happens after you roll out and what do you change and why and how do you teach software companies to elevate this as a discipline and of course you have this discipline in your background and it's a very under managed and uh, misunderstood discipline which is now changing but it's it's in the software world the way in which we were organized in the beginning was build a great product then they'll come. And then of course, agile and other things came out. And then, you know, but somewhere along the way, it was always like build the product. And then after we're ready, and it's two weeks to launch, like, oh my God, we got to figure out how to price and package this thing. And that carries with it all sorts of pain and suffering, which I've also experienced personally.
2: Yeah, I I bet. And B2B, at least in my experience, there's like, you know, sort of the the products that are packaged in a way that you can self-serve, you know, you got to go buy it and just put your credit card in totally different thing than, uh, oh, I need to talk to a salesperson. And and that would be, you know, more, I guess, it trends in the bigger solutions, enterprise, many different options. Of course, then there's the software demo process that people either love or hate, you know, and, and that that comes into the the thing. And how much leeway do I give in pricing? So. Do I guardrail my salespeople and say, well, you can give a 20% discount, you know, if you close it by end of a quarter or, you know, like there's so much that is not listed on the pricing and packaging page that goes.
0: Yeah, that. it's I think what we're talking about here is is complexity and the complexity of today's software businesses, which, by the way, includes services organizations that, you know, in our parlance, we don't necessarily monetize software as much as we monetize intellectual property. And it it doesn't matter if it comes in the form of a service or the form of a product, but it's in that delivery of that capability that we're sort of inspecting the value of and trying to ultimately package and price to that. And the complexity of the things that need to happen here have risen dramatically. And if you remember early on, the rise of the CIO, you know, back in the day, that wasn't really a role that was, uh, I think, typically under finance and other areas. And then eventually the the audience kind of learned, you know, there's so much stuff under here. We really need a role to manage that. And we would propose that the same thing is occurring and has been occurring in software. And so if you think of the five P's of that standard stack and marketing p was priced you know we would we would pull that p out and put the m for monetization in and it and it would warrant a chief monetization officer that is going to elevate that discipline now that doesn't mean everybody needs one but it does mean that the time has come to to uh, appre- appreciate honor and structure the business model of software companies to treat that as a discipline and it's a very serious science that has massive ramifications to revenue so if they're sort of slapping this on at the end of the product it's really a missed opportunity of of the overall design experience and if you've ever um, experienced a product with a certain subscription or other things you know those can be super annoying and and uh, or they cannot be and so the the product experience is very much around its monetization design and therein lies the trap and so if you decide you want to start a new company and gear all that day one, you're going to spend a lot of time developing and coding things into the software that maybe you don't know the answer to just yet. Like you don't know what basis to charge for your software. You don't know how to package and how to price it. And so you need a methodology and a framework and a way in which to think and process these issues. And all of that emerges from the complexity and it's horribly complicated. I mean, I would tell you in the in, in this world from the stuff that we do in the technology and also in the services and how you put that mosaic together is, is a, is a very complicated test. It takes a lot of critical thinking.
2: I don't even, I can't even imagine how I would train technology to do that. I mean, the work that we end up with is very often uh, and I'm sure you see this all the time and you know, it's sort of like, well, there's an intuition that uh, you know, we can roughly accumulate what the, what the audience will tolerate and then we can think about what maybe the competitive landscape is doing. Uh, but, you know, certainly not enough data to make uh, anything but this sort of intuitive leap and you're just going, well, I have experience in this space. I think this is worth this or that, but you can't do any type of, of dynamic analysis without a, a tremendous amount of, of data and thinking about it.
0: Well, and so that, so you can, I, I think you might be swimming around a concept called willingness to pay. And in places where there's lots of reference points, for example, in B2C, because those points have been set, you kind of know what you're willing to pay for that can of uh cancer that you're drinking there (laughs) whatever it was seven (laughs) up or whatever um so hey i had the 30 pound (laughs) okay (laughs) so in um intellectual property though it's like what's the value of an idea my son actually has the this little children's book like that talks about you know what is an idea and so uh, what are you willing to pay for my AI engine or my uh, new attack vector in AI that chains together ten artificial intelligence models from facial detection to object uh, detection and other things? And so the answer is that well, what's it worth to you? Well, they, and that's that's the trap, right? Uh, which we, we can talk about in just a second. But the 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 problem is that people don't know what they're willing to pay for that, and there actually is no academic science to to that you can even rely on. In fact, there's a funny story if you wanna find the research study. Do you remember in the pricing of uh, consumer products, the .99 and the .96 cents or or 95 cents? Like those are all ideal. Of course, we all round them up anyhow, but somehow this is like like lock-in. Have you ever heard the concept of lock-in? Like the QWERTY keyboard was designed because the typewriters at the time, we're getting jammed so they designed the most inefficient keyboard ever and now we're all suffering typing and trying to figure out how to do it faster but that's an example of lock-in right so in this research study that concluded 95 cents was a really great thing to end your price on if you read the study it was two interns standing outside of a concert hall with mostly an older population who was walking out and they were showing them the picture of two rollerblades one at a whole dollar and the other with this fractional ninety-five cents, and uh, it was not even like hugely material. But you know, most of them, like maybe somewhere around 55, 60 percent, you know, concluded that ninety-five cents, you know, that 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 looked better. And somehow, like this, you know, and other and it research, just got says, yeah, become become a else. thing. Yeah, and God forbid right. you put ninety-five cents. See, I always heard you uh, end with sevens. So people yeah. like sevens. <laughs> yeah. I don't know why. But, you know. And so the the this idea that you can ask people what they're willing to pay up front actually has no science so so you need a process by which to explore that within the context of a real deal and so it's kind of like the story of you know sure I'll maybe if you ask me if I'll spend 50 grand on my daughter's car she's 5 I'll be like sure but then all of a sudden when she's 15 I'm like mm, you know maybe <laughs> Maybe a Volkswagen would be fine, yeah. Right. And so the, 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 the thing that you're trying to get an angle on is that you know, pricing is very rarely a democratic process in the sense that what the customers want is going to rule your strategy because what the customers want is to pay you the least possible money like razor thin right before you go broke and because they do not want you to go out of business they want to keep using your technology and of course you as the founder and the executive team you're trying to get to maximum value and that tug and pull requires you to have a perspective on your value and in fact when you do have the perspective my personal story was i was selling five seven eight thousand i had a killer transaction in atlanta for eighteen thousand dollars of software and then on the ride down, I had a sales coach at the time was like, you know, you really should charge $100,000. Otherwise, you know, it'd just be so much better as an enterprise place. So I was like, okay, well, I'll try it. And so we, I picked the number of 125,000. And when that, when they asked me why, I said, why I, I was at Ernst & Young, we're always taught to exceed expectations. So I picked 125 grand out of the blue. And over the course of that journey, we would ent- eventually be selling that software for half a million dollars and more. And that never came out of any of the research studies we did that never came out of any of the panels or the focus groups that never would have happened until i had concluded from that call that somebody said it's not the price of the software i'm having a problem with it's the fact that you don't have a purchase order module so guess what we did we went and built a po module then we started selling it at 125 grand and then we moved our way up and so that perspective is really important and often missed in our desire to make all customers. And how
2: do you uncover all those things as part of a a system that you can replicate? how do you, how do you know all the variables?
0: Well, so that's where the complexity sets in. So we have a process that's been, I think it's about 40 years now. It started in 82 and of course it's been refined and evolved, but it involves competitive intelligence. And that, by the way, has to be done ethically. You know, many people think you can call up a buyer, mystery shop and pretend to be a buyer, uh, call up a competitor, pretend to be a buyer. And that is actually a violation of the federal uh, statutes. That's a violation of the U.S. Espionage Act and the trade secret law. It's a violation of state law. And you can get yourself in hot, hot, hot water and in the courts because that falls under unfair and deceptive trade practices and i've been an expert witness involved in cases like that that's triple damages and that creates an incentive for somebody to hold you accountable so if you ever want to gum things up you just you just go ahead and do that go because eventually yeah, eventually yeah eventually you will get caught now mystery shopping started with the idea that you would mystery shop your own stores for the customer experience and that's your data and by the way that even has some ethical things cuz you're consuming a salesperson's time and the salesperson is commission based but it's your data your stores you just can't do it to somebody else so ethically that means we are uh, deriving our insights from customers competitors customers and if you think about it that's kind of where you want to get it from anyway i mean you really don't want to sure. call call a competitor and talk to somebody two Try years to out, get of the out of college Yeah, and that's their interpretation of what they think is happening, and they just don't have the complete picture. So competitive intelligence is a very important piece to the puzzle, but you never really want to – how you weight that is very important. So it's informative for how your strategy might play, but you never want to copy what a competitor is doing because – when you do that you inadvertently copy that blueprint of risk and you don't know if that strategy is working and in fact nine times out of ten in our competitive intelligence i would tell you the strategies aren't working so you shouldn't be copying them anyhow right right so they anyway, were just
2: guessing too yeah, yeah.
0: exactly well because most people like are making you, it up
2: yeah you turn around in class and copy the paper of the kid behind you but you don't know if, the, if yeah. that's the kid who's going to do now well on both the have an F. yeah
0: right, right. <laughs> yeah so anyway then you then you so so that then you have to do some customer research you have to validate your perspectives and you have to treat everything as a hypothesis that needs to be validated come rollout time and there's a whole methodology for that as well and that process that you're going through says that what is so fundamentally different about a physical object is it's built manufactured and static and although a car might get a new software update. It's not going to like grow a fifth wheel or a trailer, you know, unless you put it on the back, but software and services, those can change very quickly. And so if you're delivering more value in six months, you need to have a a process by which to, to, inspect and have an opinion on that value and then bring that into the fold and then determine like should i change my packaging should i am i looking at a price change right now like should i change how my overall model works in some way and how might my audience of buyers react to that and understanding that is really hugely important and so that's qualitative data but then you got to get your own data so that means you got to get your transaction data any sort of usage data you really have to get into the weeds of this stuff because if you if you sit in the clouds and say, well, strategically, I think that, you know, you should raise prices 3%. What you don't realize is if you blow that through the bill of material of what everybody bought, you know, some customers might be getting a 30% increase or they might be getting a price decrease. It's just because of that discretionary component we, that you were mentioning earlier. And so that, that modeling exercise is a revenue production exercise and often that homework assignment isn't done and I remember a story from this as many years ago I was on the phone with somebody whose competitors were charging half as much as he was that, that his company was and so he wanted to lower his price and I said well if you lower the price you know like you kind of if you cut it in half, you might have to sell twice as much. Like, you know, you're going to have to make up that revenue somehow. And his comment was, well, I just assume the demand will make up for that. To which I said, well, what if it doesn't? You know? And so, so that, that is a, these are very dangerous moves, if not monitored and managed And you never
2: get to put it back
0: up. (laughs) Sometimes moves that you (laughs) make, you can't untwist the lever. You can't Mm unpull the lever. You double your prices tomorrow and then say, oops, and then you put them back. Like, communication and the ecosystem of buyers have talked they you know the damage is done it may take a long time to unravel that decision so it's do a you, high stakes uh, game
2: oh yeah absolutely do you um find a difference and i think a lot of people have especially in services i know like would uh should i put my pricing on my website or you know should i force someone to have a call in order to you know get my pricing or do you have any uh anecdotes or opinions about public display of pricing?
0: Uh, Well, so I think that there's sort of in the weeds arguments that sometimes maybe largely miss the overall sort of issues, and that might be one of them. And so I think that if you want to publish your pricing, then that implies that you have a level of discipline and execution excellence such that the pricing on the website won't diverge from what somebody actually bought it at and that could really trap and gum up the sales engine and the sales motion versus others that don't have that discipline maybe it might be a little too early to do that but in general if the, the more transparent you are about how pricing is calculated and how whether that's done live on the phone or whether that's done over the web you know how how you can explain in dialogue about how pricing grows and shrinks based on the customer's particular scenario. Hey, I have a bunch of stuff I need to do today, but then I need to roll this out to 100 locations later. If you can share with them the strong rationale of how that adds up, it's wonderful. We we had a customer in the energy space, and these are RFP driven, and they were up against seven other, six other participants, and this was up in Ohio, and they went in uh, this is prior to COVID obviously, went in physically in the space, imagine that, and they all shared each other's air. And that is a, a, a wonderful thing that I can't wait until we get back to. So they're presenting and at noon, buyer, the buying team said, hey, surprise, we're gonna spend 30 minutes over a working lunch, and each of you are gonna walk us through how your price was calculated and what, you know, how, how did you come up with that number? And our customer was the only one that could do that. And they walked with, I think it was like a four and a half, almost $5 million RFP win, Nobody else could do it. And I think that the competitive advantage that often is missed is if you can do that against a sea of people who are making it up and discretionary discounting and not treating people fairly and you bought at half what I bought at, and God forbid we compare notes, which eventually we will. I actually was very burned on that, um, which I can tell you that story is horribly embarrassing. But if you can be that, person in your market who is leading by example, who is transparent, who has a philosophy of pricing that says, look, ledge, I believe customers should be treated fairly, which means everybody that comes in and spends a half a million with me, they get the same discount. And it's not right for me to give you your extra 10% that you are demanding, or I have to go back and talk to Kevin over here and he didn't get that 10% and I would have to set him right. So I'd rather twist the conversation if we kind of replayed that to say, I understand, Ledge, you want a 10% discount, so let's talk about how you earn that. Let's look at another location. Let's look at, you know, this, this land and expand is terrible because often you land and you don't expand. But if you develop a strategy correctly, the expansion can actually happen during the sales process. So you expand to land. And as you nudge your customers to making the proper decision that risk mitigates their finances and their rollout and their decision, your sales team can become more of a maitre d' of saying, well, here are the options. And I understand you want an extra 4%. So maybe you should pay in advance instead of paying on our standard payment terms. And in that parlance, everything is structured. Everything is science and you are measuring each one of those mechanical items and tuning them. And that's what we do with optimization. We say, hey, do you really need to do that kind of an incentive right here? Is that really moving the needle or not? And that is super hard to do too because you don't get millions of transactions in B2B. You get hundreds, maybe thousands. And, and so being able to inspect at the, at the at the proper fidelity of what's happening is really super crucial both qualitatively in the sales dialogue and then quantitatively in the data and how you marry that is very challenging some of the most challenging work we've done as a firm is trying to bring that data together and and always asking yourself the question and double checking are you polarized You know, I can't tell you how many team meetings I've sat through with executives where somebody's talking about, well, you know, XYZ company will never, ever buy that. And then you go look and it's like 0.01% of the revenues. Like, why are we spending six hours talking about this? Right. Like, so that, that, that organization in which sales teams are, are, I'm sorry, software companies and service organizations are organizers will all love rolling things up into these dashboards. Right. But when you roll things up, you lose all the fidelity and all the context. And monetization is about all the fidelity and all the context. It's the little corner cases that matter, right?
2: I make this exact point whenever we're talking the differences and, you know, sort of collaborations between sales and, and marketing, which is to say, you know, the personas that we are often told to come up with are this, you know, sort of average customer that never exists and never shows up on a sales call. And, you know, that's cool that, you know, your thousand to one marketing broadcast has to, you know, sort of average out the rough corners, but we get the rough corners on the call on Zoom and we need to figure out what works for them. And I love the methodology, you know, that you're talking. I think a lot of salespeople would resonate with this. Like, look, all I want to know is what are the lovers and how much am I allowed to pull them and in what order? Because then I can focus on let me sell the thing, not worrying about having to intuit on the fly. Mm, I wonder what we'll get this one done. Like it takes a lot of burden off of that that human factor, where I'd rather be developing a relationship and relying that my monetization strategy behind that is based on some kind of you know science that's going to help me achieve my goals.
0: Yeah, you're. The current way that it works is you sort of end up with a more complicated service and product over time. And that sort of bleeds into the way that you're packaging and pricing until things are really super complex from the buying perspective. And the way in which the functions lacking monetization are organized is if you come to me and you want some different configuration, I say, okay, Ledge, I'll work on a quote and I'll get back to you. So right away, I'm going to have problem, problems getting back on your calendar and so i've just burned a week in the sales process and my sales cycles are extending and then you know you kind of feel like you might be taken advantage of so we're playing some different configuration games because you know there's a magic guy or gal in the back who says oh yeah discretionary discount here we go and so this whole audience is like organized around the, this really massive dysfunctional kind of scenario but when you treat monetization and elevate it to a discipline as a function inside of the software company or the services company, and there's a leader, uh, somebody who owns that, then what happens is that dialogue can happen like all on the fly, right? Like I can, I can literally say, here's what it looks like for what you need today, Ledge, and I can talk and switch that in for per unit pricing discount dollar amount I mean whatever way you want to talk about it I I've, I've got the tools and the capabilities to have that dialogue which we don't many software companies don't have today but if I take that dialogue and then I say well and if you just want to pilot here's what it looks like and oh by the way over 3 to 5 years and we scale this worldwide here's what that looks like that gives you a great degree of comfort of how my pricing scales and how it works And if you've got like lack of structure or discretionary stuff in there, you can't really do that. And so all of a sudden it's just like pulling teeth to try to figure out, you know, am I going to be taken advantage of and am I getting like the best price here? And is this really going to be matched with what I need? And that rodeo uh, currently is sort of the mission of obliterating all of this, because what we're also talking about here is not just complexity, but the intersection of pricing and selling. And this is really misunderstood, but that, that, the job of the software company or the services organization is to build that model simply enough as an antithesis to the complexity of the service and product, which is always getting more complicated. Hey, now we can do electronic signatures. Oh, well, if you want 100 of those, I charge you. Hey, now we can do you know what used to be document storage. Well, if you want two gig of document storage, I charge you for that. And those are just all creep up into these really big warts on your monetization strategy. And then, you know, we have to have an Excel spreadsheet in order to quote like a basic deal. And so if you have a function that keeps things simple because you're focused on how a salesperson would actually dialogue about that, and 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 I read on your profile ledge that you have also sold software like I I have as well. I would tell you after like the second or a third sentence, like you kind of if you have to keep explaining how it works, and we haven't really connected, like it starts to kind of unravel the deal a bit. Like really, like you mean like when I get to here and I run out, you're going to charge me overage? Like like that's that's really weird. And and those things can really really gum up a an organization when it comes to customer acquisition. And so. Having it be simple is, of course, the elegance, but also the complexity. To keep it simple, you better be doing the math to make sure that somebody's not driving up your costs on document storage, for example, or electronic signatures, for example.
2: Right, right. So you... In a software context you're really thinking about cost analysis too then so you would you would almost pair against that idea of you know well i need detailed analysis of how i'm using my resources because the you the cost of goods sold starts to change based on feature or size of rollout or things like that
0: yeah people want to avoid costs, I think, because everybody wants to value price, uh, which by the way, I I agree with, you should charge for your value. But what I don't agree with is the manner in which it's being done. And I think it's wrong. What happens is uh, you, you do need an appreciation for costs and how they scale. But most companies try to optimize that on a customer by customer basis, which means we have that problem where you paid twice as much as I did, right? Or in my example, I paid twice as much as you did. And that's a huge problem for brand and trust and image and other things because those are data points that get put out in the marketplace that competitive intelligence teams go pick up on. And and buying teams, by the way, are hiring competitive intelligence professionals for specifically that purpose. They'll go to your website, look at the logos, engender a discussion and find out net price paid because they're trying to figure out how much you discount and they want to beat it. right? So
2: I see these chats all the time, you know, in the, in the slacks that I'm in for sales tools, it's like, Hey, how much are you paying for this? How much are you paying for that? And, uh, I mean, it's well known. Yeah. And, and, uh, and they're just going to take it right back to the rep and push back and say, well, no, I'm not paying that.
0: Yeah. uh, And I think the, the, the issue that you're trying to get to is what we would call you know deal velocity. And deal velocity happens when we remove all that friction and backwash from the sales process. We remove all the data points out in the market that have all these different net prices paid for the same thing, which takes a while to unravel if you've been hard at work doing that. But in the end, what you're trying to do is to get yourself into playing what we would call the portfolio game. And monetization is a portfolio game. It is not the act of optimizing a customer by customer basis, you'll pay a little bit more than I would. Looking at the portfolio, I guess you could sort of think of it as a 401k. You know, you're trying to get the portfolio to perform at some basis while making the appropriate simplifications. And it's okay to make a little bit less margin over here and make a little bit more margin over here because the packaging, the the product configuration that's being bought is different. But as soon as you take that same product and offer it at two different net prices, your rodeo has begun. And it's very, yeah, very, very difficult uh, to grow. A you business. want to keep
2: those cohorts as large as possible. So you can say that, you know, the exact same cohort of customers paying the exact same type of of profit or, you know, or a pricing for, you know, the, the thing stays as the thing. And the more you split it, the worse it is.
0: Yeah, it, the, the thing that you're buying at that volume is the key, right? I and mean, if I bought something at less volume than you did, that that's okay, I didn't pay the same price. But if we bought the same thing at the same volume, like we, we might be able to withstand a modest differential in net price from a sales promotion, but we're not gonna withstand. You know, the old days of you paid a million and I paid a half a million. I mean, you can do that, they're just over. It's just the people still doing that, you know, from the nineties and sort of the Oracle story like that, that's dead and gone, but they haven't realized that yet. And then what happens is the organization's left with just a, a mess to untangle after that's been deployed in the marketplace for a few years. Right,
2: because when your upsell or your your reup comes and uh, yeah, then and people know has yep better intelligence. That's yeah,
0: right, so. and then and then people start buying at the end of the quarter. I mean, look, the people forget that the buyers are like us. Everybody's smart out there. I mean, they figure stuff out. So the more that you realize that you're not the smartest guy in the room, the the better off you're going to be because you're going to realize real quick that. Anytime that you have a transaction, everybody kind of knows about it.
2: So we're literally, when you're able to shorten that sales process, and I'm thinking about my own life, you know, on calls where I'll, you know, I'll sort of be there and I need to quote something, you know, on the, the fly. And, and we do build models in many cases where, you know, and they're reasonably intelligent. So you check the boxes on what you want to buy. It produces your quote, you know, things of that nature. Can we adjust based on, you know, this or that or the other variable, but the more complex you got you certainly couldn't do that you know on a roll your own type of thing so do you put software interfaces in front of reps to be able to you know slide these certain bars and figure these things out uh, to shorten that process
0: well reps need enablement tools so so you know if you so you, you have a selling background so you'll know this personally but You know depending on what methodology you read spin selling or and the whole that's what i grew up on and a whole bunch of other ones you know you're you're trying to understand the access to power and the dynamics of the group and b2b of the group who's writing the check who's got influence who's not that that's that's you as a salesperson trying to understand the dynamics Then you have to understand the situation, the sort of use case and the reason why the customer is coming from you. And then you've got like this sea of list of capabilities that if you wanted to, you could sort of ad nauseum, go through a demo and everybody's going to be numb. Or if you're savvy, you could say, well, you really have these three needs. And so I'm going to show you these four things. And that match is a really important aspect of the selling process, because that means that that rep has situational fluency. They've seen enough deals to say i see your problem i can still ask good questions and listen and i can make that match now when we overlay on top unstructured pricing it's like it's really hard for the the brain to sort of handle all of that oh and i would
2: would argue that it screws your ability to be that consultative salesperson that's right you just cannot be doing those things at the same time and so you're forced to go off the call and i'll get you a custom quote i'll send it on email They'll never open it, get in the second call, never happens. Two, three weeks later, sorry, we went with somebody else. And so you do want to, you need to be fluid and, and execute quickly. And that requires you to have like as much simplicity as, as possible.
0: Yeah, way. and this is where systems like Salesforce and CPQ and others kind of fall down for reps. What, what you need to be able to do is explore configurations and configuration options Maybe you do want to put together a good, better, best for your customer or a good and a better, but that involves so much work that often you just give them the one answer to what they're specifically asking because you can't bear the the thought of another 12 hours of your selling time to go you know, do a quote that they may not look at. So you need tools to be able to range them early on in the sales process to say hey you're looking at somewhere between two and three hundred thousand or twenty and thirty thousand dollars that would earn you somewhere between a ten and a fifteen percent discount which means we can take our hundred dollar per unit price down to eight dollars at scale and if you really wanted to blow us out you know company-wide we can get all the way down to five dollars and Having situational fluency around deal economics is really super difficult if the configurations and the volume of the configurations are changing. And, and buyers really want to understand, you know, what does it look like for me today? Like I have this problem and I have you know a certain amount of units that you need to deliver to me to handle this problem. And then they're going to say, ledge, I don't really know you that well, so could we pilot at a smaller volume? And then by the way, Ledge, what does this look like in year three when like, we're totally in love with you and everything's great and we're totally rolled out with all your services and technology and they want to know that. But then they know there's a discretionary discount and then they know there's a quoting game to be had and then you're not geared for that properly. I mean, I just probably went through 40 hours of work for some reps to get through that and maybe a month. Right. And and our customers have that like in the first call because As a maitre d, you're saying, here's how our pricing scales, here's how you earn, here's what they can show them graphics, they can show, you know, there's a lot of stuff they can embed in their sales system to activate that online. And, you know, enterprise sales, especially, do you ever remember the National Geographic show? with the birds of paradise and you're watching these two birds for like 45 minutes going, what in the hell is going on? (laughs) And they've got all these rituals and dances and you're just kind of like, okay, I think that they're gonna nest together eventually. So to me, that's like enterprise sales, you know, one bird's (laughs) dancing around saying, well, I don't want to talk about the price because I got to show the value first. And the buyer is like, can I just understand if we're in the same damn ocean? Like I need to know, like, is this a million dollars or a hundred
2: magnitude? Are we exactly.
0: (laughs) And so this dance and this rodeo is like kind of old old guard, if you will. And if you can lean into that first dialogue with a couple of things. Number one, the ability to have that dialogue I just talked about, but also your philosophy of pricing. These are sort of setting up these neutralizing objections before they even become, you can say, Hey, look, Ledge, one of the things that we really pride ourselves about here is we treat our customers fairly. And, you know, We believe in market fairness. Our philosophy is if two people come in and spend the same amount with us, they earn the same discount. Here's how that works. I'm happy to give you kind of the other elements of the model. If you're open to paying in advance, you can earn some more. If you're open to doing this, then you can do that. Uh, We have a deal desk function for these kinds of industries, but you have to be in that industry. And in order to get to the deal desk, you have to be at least at this volume and be willing to take a case study and blah, blah, blah. And then if you're approved through the deal desk, you could earn an additional X percent. and that's all like open right like it's not in the back like in the let so me
2: go talk to my manager see what i can do yeah
0: exactly and you'll know this by the way any company that you call and they're especially the the larger ones i can think of a couple off the top of my head and i know you can too when the rep starts the dialogue and says ledge i'm really glad you called like first of all he, you don't even know me so um, okay ledge i'm really or, i'm really glad you called because it turns out that you're never going to believe this but january really good month to buy software and i think i'm not sure but i think if you were willing to make a decision by the end of the month i'd get you a special deal and that that's the beginning of the unravel and now you 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 have just signaled so much drama into your selling process it's game over and the buyer especially the savvy ones are like oh i, I i'm gonna get this one
2: it's hilarious because i'm a partner seller for some things that our clients need anyway and the first thing I'll always do is, like, do not pay the sticker to this company. I'm just going to go beat up our rep for you. <laughs> and and I know that they're going to do it. They're so desperate to meet their numbers that, you know, you want 20% off? Sure. <laughs> and, and, I mean, it's it's wild variations. 35% off? And I'm like, what? You are just, there's no value here if you do that. Now, I also, I want to look at it and go, you know, look, I know super vendor X, the turning up this additional client costs you zero cents, you know? So don't tell me you need to charge them a thousand dollars a month.
0: There's a, so you use the term value. So on a acquisition, let's say that you were selling a a software product, for example, and it, it doesn't, it could be a recurring service as well. But if in the data, if in your own data, let's say you had an 80 point margin swing, which I've, We've definitely seen in the enterprise. So, so somebody paid a million and somebody paid two hundred grand for the exact same thing. Well, come time to value this, and maybe if you're a PE firm, you're at the end of the holding period of you know roughly five years, and now you want to prep this baby up for sale. The go forward pipeline, the buyer is going to look at that and go, huh, eighty point margin swing. You know, I know you have a twenty million pipe. They're gonna reduce the value of the pipeline, which can impact your multiple and other things because they're gonna say, we have no idea what the team is gonna be able to sell these at, so we have to choose the least. And of course, this is a negotiation element, but it opens you up. My, My point is the lack of the discipline is just punishing on valuation, punishing on valuation. And the worst part about the whole picture is that when you hit your growth curve, nobody really wants to rock the boat when you're under heavy growth because you're growing. But there's a finite number of customers. So when you're riding sort of the rails of the growth curve and you're leaving money on the table, then when you get off the growth curve, which everybody eventually will, the the sort of peak of the growth curve, it's almost too late. You can't go back to the customer and say, hey, I hired software pricing partners. Oops, we need to double your prices because we left a lot of money (laughs) on the table. Like it doesn't work that way, right? And in fact, there's contracts and other clauses that may have locked customers into.
2: Oh, yeah. Going up is dramatically harder than going down. (laughs) Yes. I mean, once you set that anchor, you know, forget about it. You're never getting back in there. And I do think, and I don't know if you ever see things like, you know, sort of most favored nation pricing to help me build a feature or something like that. You know, I, I find that those deals do help, you know, like sort of financing through revenue instead of borrowing more money or raising more money. But I, I'd imagine you could you could document that in and lock that and just you know only five customers will ever be able to take advantage of that. Here's what the program is. You know, first person in line gets this price. You know, like you could sort of protect yourself against the downstream uh, negative impacts of that.
0: Well, you're, so MFN clauses are common in government and sometimes, but more rarely in commercial but you're only going to get nailed. And if you're in commercial and government and you're discretionary discounted, you're going to get nailed (laughs) because, because they have audit rights and inspection rights and and they'll, they'll exercise them. Uh, So where it gets nasty is in the description of what it was that was bought. And often the description is so broad, that it sort of like talks about your software in whatever form it may come in in perpetuity I get as an MFN clause. And that's not really an appropriate sort of cage. And I think that term limiting and talking about specifics of capabilities is probably much better preferred as an overall strategy for something like that than it's my enterprise edition, which, you know, by the way, we talk a lot about these these things that creep into the pricing model, where it's like, "Well, just write me this check and all you can eat." And it turns out that when the customer gets that, they're never going to let it go. And I've I've actually seen customers be willing to go to lawsuit in order to do that. And this was common in the on prem to cloud shift, which some companies are a little bit late to in uh, in the software space. And the the cloud wasn't around when the on prem technology was developed, and the terms were written to describe that if a future product is somewhat similar to the main product, then I get that as an all you can eat as well. So some companies are arguing, well, your new cloud edition, which you're paying the hosting on, I get as part of that. And that's a dicey, nasty. So so you just really have to be, you know, MFNs are kind of strings around the organization that are constraints that you want to be super careful of, but they but MFNs uh, imply excellence in how you're geared in the sales organization and the marketplace that you have to really be careful of before you just say, oh yeah, sure. I need that deal. MFN away we go because you can get, you can get yourself in hot water, <laughs> really hot water.
2: We have, we probably go on endlessly about <laughs> the hot water stories. So, um, you know, if, if this is piquing someone's interest, obviously they could, they could hire you guys. And are there any resources that, you know, you recommend uh, excellent books or or blogs or, you know, anything that just like people are interested in this you know, pricing methodology, monetization, you know, which what's your go-to resources there?
0: There's actually, uh, so softwarepricing.com has tons of eBooks. And if anybody wants access to a resource center, there's even more um, that they can get access to. But there actually is a book that I really love that I remembered, and it's called Different. And the the and it's hysterical and so um the i'll give you a short excerpt which does not do the book justice but i think if you're in product or developing a service or an offering that you're trying to go for that differentiated value this is the book you want to read and so if you and i were competitors ledge i would stack my strengths up against your weaknesses the typical swat And then you would do the same. And then I would spend my product development dollars shoring up my weaknesses compared to your strengths. And you would do the same. And after a couple of years, if you just put yourself as the buyer, the buyer is going to look at you and I and go, eh, average. You know, they kind of do the same stuff. And so it's the journey of how, again, we're organized and everything kind of converges to the mean. And I think that that. journey
2: of mediocrity. Exactly.
0: Yep. The journey of mediocrity. It's a cute Yeah, absolutely. Got to get yeah a that's cool. In.
2: Well, I, I love this. I could go on for all day, but we don't have all day. So Chris, thank you. A- anybody who wants to reach out to you, you know, best places to do that and help them uh, help us with show notes and uh, getting people in touch with you.
0: Uh, it, it's going to be softwarepricing.com. They can you know, always welcome to follow me on LinkedIn. Awesome. Awesome. Well, hey,
2: thank you so much for the insights. Really cool to have you on.
0: Yeah. Happy to do a part two, Ledge. Thank you for having me.
1: Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Leaders of B2B podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please give us a five-star rating. And as always, you can see more information about this episode and all the resources mentioned at leadersofb2b.com.